Today's program is brought to you by Thurman Maple Days. Celebrate flowing of sap in the Adirondacks, self-guiding to seven sites for talks, tours, tastes, and old-fashioned friendliness. For more information, visit ThurmanMapleDays.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Bushwick, Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we'll be focusing on one of New York City's most famous neighborhoods, Chinatown. Joining me on the show today is author Valerie M. Bruce, who wrote the recently published book titled From Farm to Canal Street. Food systems professor at NYU, Marian Nessel, called this book, quote, essential reading for anyone interested in who produces food for urban areas and how it gets into cities. The book tells the untold story of how the food system of New York City's oldest and most famous ethnic enclave developed. Valerie, welcome to the show. Hi, Jenna. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm, we're really excited. I'm really excited to speak with you today. And um, big kudos from Marian Nessel on your book, by the way, which I have to say I completely agree. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was great. I forwarded that to my editor and said, that needs to be on the back of the book for the next edition. <laughs> so let, I want to start by kind of situating, you know, the, us and and this research of this book, for especially for those who are not as familiar with, um, with Chinatown, which is a very famous community in New York City. So can you start by telling us kind of geographically where Chinatown is situated and, and how large a community uh, it represents? Sure. Um, <clears throat> Chinatown is in Lower Manhattan, so that's that's important for this study. That's the Chinatown I focused on because, actually, there's multiple Chinatowns in New York City now. Um, there's a growing Chinatown around Sunset Park in Brooklyn, and there's a well-established Chinatown in Flushing. Um, but the one in Lower Manhattan, now this is around Canal. It was traditionally below Canal Street, but it has you know bled north of Canal Street, kind of overtaking what was... Little Italy around Mott and Mulberry Street, and and then pushing eastward um, under the Broadway bit Bridge as the Fujianese population started coming in, the recent wave of Chinese immigrants. Um, so it's it's quite a big neighborhood, so to speak. It's very diverse. Um, it's not just Chinese immigrants um, who do commerce there. Uh, there's um, all kinds of of Asians from Southeast Asians, Vietnamese and Thai and. Laotians, um, as well as many different kinds of ethnic Chinese. And um, in the U.S. now, Chinatown in Lower Manhattan is the largest Chinese, um, you know, Chinese-born population with over half a million. Oh, wow. So, so, so larger than anywhere else in, in the United States, even San Francisco? Yes. So um, you're right to bring up San Francisco. That was the first... Um, enclave of, of Chinese people right. to develop in the U.S. is that the Chinese were brought out west to work on the railroad um, and, you know, settled in San Francisco, but, you know, quickly in the latter part of the 1800s, um, after the railroads were, were kind of up and running, um, there was a lot of antipathy towards Chinese, and these were mostly Chinese men um, who were doing this work, and um, that 
that uh, prejudice was codified. Um, there's the Chinese Exclusion Act. The U.S. said no more Chinese immigrants can come in, and there was there was a lot of, of racism and prejudice. And so, Chinese men started moving to the East Coast um, to escape that, and that's when we started to see Lower Manhattan. Um, a population of Chinese men. Bachelors is a bachelor society. This was around the turn of the 20th century. Um, and quickly, of course, it's Chinese, um, for, for Chinese people, food is central to their culture. Um, it's how they socialize. Um, it's how they um, celebrate um, food right. and life. Yeah. Uh, so we immediately saw when you go back in the historical record of news articles, you know, some of which I pulled for the chapter on Chinese food that I did, um, but also in botanical records and horticulturalists, like um, a famous horticulturalist in the U.S., Liberty Hyde Bailey, um, who you know was a Cornell um, professor and um, explorer extraordinaire who was documenting um, the varieties, you know, the exotic quote unquote varieties of fruits and vegetables that um, were being grown and consumed um, for Chinatown markets. So, you know, and I want to I want to kind of talk um, a little bit more in depth about how this system came to be. So we kind of we covered the the influx of, of Chinese immigrants um, to the city itself. But what is it about the Chinese immigrant experience and, and culture um, that can explain how Chinatown became such a permanent area in a city that is known to be constantly evolving and changing? Um, I, I think there's a number of things. There um, is the continuing influx of of Chinese immigrants um, that has happened really, really took off um, after 1965 when American immigration policy was liberalized and, and origin quotas were lifted or expanded. And we really saw at that point in U.S. history, you know, immigration from Latin America and from Asia just um, taking off. And so you have this kind of strata of society within Chinatown where you see multiple generation um, Chinese born and Chinese Americans. And um, ownership, getting into the business class, is always seen as a pathway to success. And the food industry um, was really where um, Chinese people focused their attention, along with we think of the Chinese laundry as a typical business or a curio shop. Mm-hmm. Um, but restaurants early on were very much a part, you know, from that early period, even the, the be- early 1900s, as New Yorkers were, you know, cosmopolitan diners, Chinatown restaurants, which started sort of to serve Chinese society itself, already were in tune with how they can kind of pitch their dishes and adapt their dishes to American palates in general. And so chop suey, you know, is this famous example of a, of a dish that was very consciously sculpted. I mean, you could look at that and say, that's a bastardization of authentic Chinese right, food, not, you know, yeah. but, it's, but it was actually very consciously sculpted. And so, you know, in, in answer to your question, you know, particularly in my lens through the food economy in Chinatown, um, it's really kept a food industry kind of anchored geographically within Chinatown. Um, and it's, and it's, very, it's very strong, um, very vibrant, very well established. Um, and I think that anchors much of the business in, in Chinatown um, and the influx, the, op- the employment opportunities, 
um, for those just coming in, um, as well as for those who are gaining some capital and can invest. Right. And one of the things that I loved so much, um, just, you know, it was just a, a few paragraphs, but you talked about how important food is in the culture and how it, one of the things that differentiates it is that, is that um, in Hong Kong, for for, ans- for instance, um, the, the, the relationship between income and uh, the cost spent on food mm-hmm. is is opposite of what you typically see. So you typically see with rate raising income, they you know people spend less on food, but that's in fact different in the right. culture. Right. Um, you know, in Chinatown, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's two things about um, you know what scholars have studied about assimilation of Chinese in America. There's those those two points. The one that you mentioned, which transcends, I think, Chinese culture around the world, is that yes. You make more money, you're spending more on food. You could buy more luxury items, and food is a part of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's another thing in that the Chinese in America, as well as the Italians, and these are my people, you know, Mm -hmm. America. (laughs) Mine too. um, Also, so I identify with this, but um, are slow, very slow and resistant to assimilating food traditions. That food traditions are hung on to after language might be gone, religion might be gone, but food traditions are central in multiple generations past um, the immigration. Point. Wow. So, sorry, um, go on. <laughs> so, you know, so, we have these attributes um, of why food is important in Chinatown. But what I was really curious about, you know, when I started this research was, you know, from a food systems perspective. So, um, this was a time, this was in the beginning, you know, 2000, 2002 or so, I started this research. And, and it was a time when farmers markets were really growing um, and CSAs were growing and these direct, you know, farm to consumer um, supply chains were developing in the city. And, and one of the reasons for that um, and why people, consumers and farmers were interested in that is one for diversity of products. You know, you want to mm-hmm. you want to have an in, you know a different variety um, of of lettuce or of, of tomatoes, heirloom tomatoes, things mm-hmm. that you that supermarkets aren't supplying in mass. Right. You know, because we all know you know supermarkets now we can, we have fresh fruits and vegetables all year round, but there's very limited varieties, and those varieties yeah. are bred for durability. Right. I have tomatoes sitting on my counter. I'm doing an experiment at home. I have tomatoes sitting on my counter that have been there since the first week in January. Oh, my God. still have no rot on them. No. Wow. Those skins <laughs> are bred to be so tight that nothing you can, trans- can penetrate yeah, them. You can transport them all around the world. There's organism that has been able to get into that. Wow. So, That's amazing. <laughs> and but, scary, um, by the way. That's terrifying, but okay. Yes. <laughs> So um, so that is not food to me. But right. one thing that struck me about Chinatown markets was that there was this incredible diversity. And when I looked in, you know, the records, so to speak, the terminal market reports, because the USDA has inspectors at every terminal market mm-hmm. in the U.S. So this is how wholesale distribution has become centralized um, through these terminal markets. USDA has inspectors there, and they say what the prices are and what products are coming in and where they're coming in from. And this is and one thing there, I noticed. There, there are terminal markets in every all, city? Oh, sorry. Sorry to interrupt, but are there, ter- there are terminal markets in every city? Um, yes, more, okay. more or less in every every large. So it's like city. a standardized sort of distribution mechanism. Yes. Okay. And so, and, and sorry, I cut you off when you were talking about New York City specifically. Okay. <laughs> so, so just to step one, one thing that clued me into that Chinatown worked differently mm-hmm. 
than this other model. And, and apart from the terminal market model, they're supermarkets, right? We're really supermarkets now at the retail end are controlling distribution. They're organizing production at the farm level, contracting with farms and cutting out the middleman, which is the, the terminal market, the wholesalers mm-hmm. who are working with growers. Okay, so we have those two models going on. And retail has concentrated far beyond, um, even, you know, the wholesale model. But Chinatown's not working on either one of those models. We don't see that kind of consolidation of supply chains. And the first thing that clued me into that was looking at the terminal market reports. You know, the vegetables and fruits I was seeing on the streets of Chinatown, you know, I was at a botanical garden. So I was interested in botanical diversity at first, you know, seeing all these different varieties of eggplants and long beans and fuzzy squash and 12 different kinds of brassicas, you know, mm-hmm. all the choys, the bok choy, Shanghai choy, that many of these were not recorded by the USDA. They weren't coming in through, through those channels, through the terminal market cha- channels. They weren't coming in through supermarket channels because you can go to supermarkets and not you see these. Yeah, you don't see them. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, bok choy, yeah, maybe. But um, So then uh, that led to my first question and kind of led to the unraveling of this story about how Chinatown's food system as this, you know, model that um, is not following the normal trends of centralization is actually highly decentralized. Um, wholesalers um, would work on con- work on consignment with farmers, and, and what I found was that the relationships between the wholesalers, who are located actually in Chinatown, and that's important, they're physically in Lower Manhattan, so that they can supply all of those micro markets. So when you walk down. Mott Street, you walk down Canal Street, you know, I counted in my transect of 10 blocks, 88 produce markets. And most wow. half of them are storefronts and street vendors, people working on the streets, selling fruits and vegetables. They rely on those wholesalers being right there in Manhattan. You would not have that micro-market structure um, if you didn't have the wholesalers there. Yeah. And these wholesalers also coordinate with farmers. And so I saw farmers of all different shapes and sizes um, and I traveled around Long Island. I traveled around Southern Florida. You know, Southern Florida, historically, before California, but even now, supplies a lot of our winter produce. Mm-hmm. Um, and Chinese farmers, Chinese American farmers, who, you know, first started out in New Jersey or Long Island, you know, before refrigerated supply, then with technology changes, went down to Southern Florida. And then I found out that there were. Um, business people in Florida, wholesalers who were organizing production in Honduras. So after free trade, trade barriers went away with with CAFTA and the Caribbean Basin Initiative before that. Central America, the Caribbean, started becoming a supplier of, in this case, Chinese vegetables. Mm -hmm. Um, And so these stories about the global supply chain or global food system, if you will, as told through Chinatown, actually is a very different model than one you might think of as, you know, kind of Walmart either taking over the world and demanding certain prices and demanding certain types of produce. One that's corporate um, controlled and, and yes, represents that, globalized. Yes, Chinatown up. is this highly decentralized model. And you have crop diversity, you have small farmers and home gardeners articulating into distant markets. Mm -hmm. Um, You have socially embedded trade relations where wholesalers and farmers 
Um, that's really where I concentrated. We're working back and forth. What works? What doesn't work? What do consumers like? What grows well here? You know, trying to figure out what are the best um, varieties to provide. Um, and you had this opportunity for in, in the Honduran case for people, um, farmers who um, were just articulating with, with global markets for the first time um, to do so in a way that was economically advantageous for them because contract farming has had um, there's been many opportunities for that but in many cases it's it's led to um, indebtedness of, of farmers overseas right can you talk can you tell me a little bit um, about how the how your work took you specifically to Honduras can you um, yes. go into that and you know yeah and what the be- sort of the benefits that you've seen from mm-hmm. those kinds of relationships have have yielded so um, I in, in constructing this research project, I, I used a snowball sampling technique, which means you talk to one person who then introduces you to another actor in that system, introduces you to somewhere else. And that's what led me to Honduras. That's what led me first to Florida. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to Florida, those people led me to Honduras. And so I kind of charted this social network of trade. Um, And in Honduras, um, you know, Honduras was your typical banana republic, united fruit company, you know, now uh, Chiquita and Dole, Mm -hmm. United and Standard Fruit Companies had set up on the coast. They controlled the ports. They built the roads, right? This is what we mean by a banana republic, all for export of one crop, the banana. Right. You know, which is in serious trouble now because of black tickets. One variety of banana, right? One specific specific variety of banana. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so in central Honduras, where Chinese vegetables are grown, it was similar. Now, Honduras is... It was similar in that there was one, one main market crop, and that was tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Um, so central Honduras is very mountainous, but there's the Pan American Highway that goes through the center of Honduras and goes to the coast, and you know from there are the ports that would um, barge food up up here, up to the east coast. You know, first to Florida, typically to Florida, and then it would come in on on road from from the ports of Miami. Mm-hmm. But so you had the infrastructure there that was the trade infrastructure that was established from the banana industry. But as bananas and those kind of those tropical commodity crops were um, it was a boom and bust cycle, right? You had so much being grown, prices were deflated. Um, so companies that were great were getting out of that business, trying to diversify, going into non-traditional agricultural exports was like the thing in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so non-traditional agricultural exports are a part in the tropics. That's something different than sugar, bananas, cacao, coffee, and fruits and vegetables. So they're fruits and vegetables. Um, so tomatoes were big. Cucumbers were big in central Honduras. But again, farmers would plant only that one. They'd plant one variety of tomato. And what happened in, in Comayagua, um, where Chinese vegetables are now being produced, is there is a white fly infestation. So then the USDA says detention on any imports. We can't import from tomatoes from Honduras. There's so they're in big fly. trouble. Yeah. We don't want it. Those farmers were in debt to their exporters because contract farming works on a credit basis. So you're a farmer. You need to get seed. You need to get your fertilizers. 
um, you need to pay labor, you know, before the harvest comes in, Mm -hmm. the export company outweighs those expenses for you, you know, if you don't have the cash yourself. And so then if you don't sell the crop, right, all you have is debt. And so I I met farmers who were still in debt over tomatoes. Now they're growing Chinese vegetables. And it's a very different situation because there's a suite of about 10 to 12 different varieties of vegetables that they rotated between. And the export companies organizing production, they learned from the mistake with tomatoes. And they said, you know, we have to do crop rotation here. We have to, you know, potentially break pest infestation cycles by rotating crops. Mm-hmm. Um, they were breeding specific varieties, like Chinese eggplant was really, that's the long, skinny purple eggplant, mm-hmm. was really, Honduras is a big producer of that um, because they were taking. Um, a native solanum. Solanum is the genus of tomato and eggplant. They were taking a native species that had a rootstock that was resistant to a soil nematode, which will, you know, eat through the roots and cause the plant to die. Um, they were using so they were using a resistant rootstock from a native solanum and grafting the Chinese eggplant cultivar on top of it. So a form of modification <laughs> a form of um, a form an ingenious way to avoid the use of pesticides for right. soil nematodes mm-hmm. and to make that variety work for for their climate so, so and in a lot of ways it seems like this should be i mean this should be how we sh- mm-hmm. you know how, a model for many more um you know producers right i mean just the basic mm-hmm. tenets of crop rotation and diversification of the kinds of vegetables that you produce Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. So, um, okay. So I want to take a quick break now. And then when we come back, I want to turn our focus a little bit more on New York City and municipal food policy. So a word from our sponsors. Today's program was brought to you by Thurman Maple Days. Celebrate flowing of sap in the Adirondacks, self-guiding to seven sites for talks, tours, tastes, and old-fashioned friendliness. Maple syrup lovers unite. How was maple syrup made 100 years ago? What are the current practices? What are sugar shacks? Visit Thurman County and go on the maple syrup tour of a lifetime for three glorious weekends to celebrate the start of spring and the end of cabin fever. ThurmanMapleDays.com has all the information you need. Watch sap being gathered and boiled and see how a certified tree farm makes maximum use of the wood from maple and other trees. Enjoy a whole day of fun activities, demonstrations, sampling, and shopping for delectable goodies, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. each day. Like pancakes? Of course you like pancakes. Pancake breakfast at Valley Road Maple Farm is available each day, beginning at 9 a.m. and running until 1 p.m., so you won't have to miss a minute of tour time. If you can already taste the maple syrup, visit ThurmanMapleDays.com to find out more. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with author Valerie and Bruce about her new book, From Farm to Canal Street. So I want to I talk about um, distribution in New York City specifically and, and how it's different for the Asian fruits and vegetables. And we started talking about a little bit at the beginning of the show about um, the, the terminal market. So can you kind of give us a little bit more of the lay of the land of how most food enters the city and is distributed? 
Yes. So um, just to give you a sense of the kind of tri- the broad strokes, I guess, of food distribution um, is that, you know, it used to be you know, historically as New York City was growing in the first part of the 1900s, you know, street push carts um, and street vendors were the way they were an entry point for for um, people to work for themselves, um, people who didn't have language skills or education, many immigrants. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, wholesalers kind of, or terminal, not terminal markets, but indoor markets um, was sort of the next phase to get, so a lot of produce distribution was done on the street, street vendors and pushcart people and, you know, itinerant kind of wandering salespeople. And then, um, Mayor LaGuardia came in and said, you know what, we got to get all this is, we got to get kind of all these people off the street, right? This is a messy business, mm-hmm. riding produce around. So I'm going to, what he did was create indoor market terminals. Um, some of them still exist. And this was to give a, a place where there's a stall to vendors um, in an indoor space. You know, it should be a win-win. You know, you think you get people out of the elements, get them off the mm-hmm. street in the winter. Less congestion, um, yeah. Right, less congestion on the streets. Um, but, you know, that there's two you know, surviving relics, you know, that I know of from, from that era. And one is the Essex Street Market, which has seen a revitalization um, with this new interest in, in mm-hmm. food culture. Close to Chinatown. Five to ten years, yeah. And that's, that's the Lower East Side, mm-hmm. close to Chinatown. Um, and then there's the um, Arthur Avenue Market in, in Little Italy. And this was right, you know, near the Botanical Garden. So we used to go there for celebratory lunches or just if we felt like getting out all the time. And that's a really great indoor market. Mm-hmm. It's still really vibrant. Um, so... And not close to Chinatown. As things were, you know, as things were progressing, yeah, as things were progressing and um, supermarkets started to come into the picture. And, you know, I think this, you know, I have to say, I haven't researched this really intensely, but my guess is that, you know, supermarket expansion kind of mirrors suburbanization, right, car-centric life, doing errands. You go, you have the one-stop shop, you get everything you need. So supermarkets have become the players that organize distribution in many ways. There used to be more of a wholesale um, distribution center, and this is, you know, this is where the terminal markets were. So this is sort of long-winded, but in the 70s, after the indoor market craze, like in the neighborhoods, then cities said, and New York City did this, they said, let's do a terminal market. So now we're going to put all the wholesalers for the city in one place. And so all the truck traffic is going to come over the GW Bridge. It's going to go into the South Bronx. That's where New York City's terminal market is. And there's the produce market. There's beef and um, meat. There's now the Fulton Fish Market moved up there. Mm -hmm. So that's the main wholesale. So we had that trend going on. Let's get all the wholesale really centralized. Then you have supermarkets doing their thing, organizing production, and, and taking up a lot of the supply chains for how people get get their food. And, and so, so wait, do, does the produce and do, this, do the products um, for supermarkets come from the the terminal market as well? Um, not typically now. Okay. Not major supermarkets. Maybe your mom and pop supermarkets, if mm-hmm. there are any. Some towns do have them, or some cities do have them. Your independent supermarkets, but most major supermarkets have their own warehouses, their own supply chains. Okay. 
So this mostly for like restaurants. You can think of that as two different systems. Okay. You can think of that as two different systems. But restaurants, um, catering businesses, maybe um, small in the city, small corner markets, bodegas, bodegas, Mm -hmm. they're going to be using the terminal market. Got it. Okay. Okay. Um, so, So like I said in the beginning, you know, I found that the Chinese... Uh, Chinatown retailers were not using Hunts Point. And it, and it makes sense. When you go down to Chinatown and you walk around, you see this great, you know, and, and Chinatown is great for culinary tourism, for food tourism, mm-hmm. um, because you walk around and there's, you know, trade is taking place on the streets. You know, like I said, most of the produce market um, markets are storefronts or carts, push carts. Um, and you know, so what does that mean? You have these business models that there's no refrigeration, mm-hmm. right? They don't have space for storage. They only have space for what they're selling. Um, and so the wholesalers are there in Chinatown making deliveries on a daily basis to their retailers. And they're the ones who act as, you know, the storers. They have the walk-in coolers, right? They're receiving um, the uh, they're receiving constant inventory updates so that they can keep their suppliers, you know, their shelves full. I mean, one of the hallmarks, I think, of produce distribution today is fresh 24-7. Right. 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 You can get. And so that takes, with, with highly perishable products like fruits and vegetables, that takes a lot of orchestration. That's all the behind-the-scenes work that you, that you might not think about when you walk into a supermarket or you walk into any store. There's a lot of orchestration. I mean, from the farmer, you know, bringing in the bok choy from the field in Florida at 85 degrees, using a vacuum cooler or a water cooler to get that temperature down right away, getting it into refrigeration, maybe onto a refrigerated truck, going right up to Chinatown 24 hours later. It's arrived in Lower Manhattan, and it's being distributed onto the street. So super fresh. <laughs> super fresh. Yeah, mm-hmm. which I, I feel like, um, unfortunately, maybe a lot of people don't really realize that about the um, produce available in Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, I mean, how scalable would you say is this model? You know, you one of the things you touch on in the book is how sit and this is definitely true. Cities are are at the forefront of um, the social movement in in food politics today, and that these sort of immigrant food systems in New York need to be talked about a little bit more in terms of how you can in terms of like the good food movement, right? So, what is it specifically that we can learn from this model that could inform the debate? Um, I think there's there's two things. It's decentralization um, and it's location. It's so geographic proximity matters and decentralized supply chains. And so what what that means um, is you know if you look food development, I think food retail restaurants, right? As we're seeing more people interested in that as entertainment and, and um, leading certain lifestyles um, and really interested in where your food comes from for environmental and, and social reasons and, you know, and all the great stuff we see in the local food mi- movement and artisanal food movement. Um, you know, it's an opportunity for economic development, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and 
you know, the city is aware of this, and they created a great, you know, Bloomberg was really forward-thinking in creating the, the Office of, of Food Policy, mm-hmm. and um, in order to centralize efforts there. Um, but I, I, I think there's a lot of focus on, on farmers' markets, on direct markets, which is great. Um, and also a lot of focus on food security. So neighborhoods that don't have fresh food options or nutri- nutritious food options, um, where food costs more, mm-hmm. good food costs more than fast food. Um, and so a lot of the efforts in cities are focused there, right. food security and direct markets. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the way I see it is that you know, immigrant food systems, you know, particularly Chinatown as a model, um, have have value to this conversation because um, you know one thing that brings tourism in, one thing that 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 brings any you know person interested in investing in a business or living in a neighborhood in is 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 food commerce. You know, on the streets, it's being right. able to go out but shop for what you need. Um, and so you know, to think about ways that you could model Chinatown's food system in other neighborhoods, um, you know, would be fairly simple instead of focusing focusing on wholesale distribution only at Hunts Point Terminal Market, you know, think about zoning, right, that would allow wholesale businesses to move in into a neighborhood on a small scale level. Right. So so encouraging, you know, the less production, less um, high rise, <laughs> uh, fancy condos or, and, and more. You know, or maybe high rise, but on the street level. You can have, you know, industrial activity going on. You could have a wholesale distributor there. Right. You know, imagine, you know, take take the west side around Chelsea Market in the High Line, what's been going on there. A lot of that development has been around food, right? Mm-hmm. Chelsea Market is awesome for, for food, for, for eating, and for shopping. There's, you know, some of the, the best produce and fish that you could buy in the city are there. Um, there's also the waterfront. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine, you know, and this is for, for local and regional markets, you know, instead of thinking as local food only coming through farmer's markets or coming from certain cooperatives like community-supported agriculture, what if there was a wholesaler of New York State, New Jersey, regional foods that was right there, kind of in the heart where people are shopping and going out to eat, and how that would become a, a large, larger supply chain for the restaurants and the retailers that are there that maybe don't have access to, to local supply chains. Right? Because right. right now, you know, when you think about local agriculture, it's at this bottleneck. Mm-hmm. It's at this bottleneck. They want regional farmers in New York... Vermont, right? These are the areas I'm familiar with. There's a lot of talk right now in the southern tier of New York, where I am now, about this this area becoming a major supplier for the East Coast. Mm-hmm. That's only going to happen if the supply chains are in place. Right. I mean, right now the supply chains are geared towards supermarkets mainly. Right. Um, and supermarkets are looking for least cost. So they're going out to California. You know, it might, it's, it might cost a little bit more to grow in New York, you know, but we'll which see you, how things evolve. Which that time. seems crazy that it's cheaper to go to yeah. to California to get produce, at least that are that are native to this area, uh, right. than, than to go in our own back, so to speak, backyard. Um, yeah, yeah. 
But so, it's the laws of comparative advantage at work. Right, right. Um, so what, uh, so in, in addition to kind of maybe lobbying or talking to our elected officials about zoning laws, any other sort of advice for consumers out there who would like to see more diversification and how uh, in the distribution system in, the, in New York City? Um, well, I think talking to the places in, uh, uh, in which they shop, um, if they have, you know, can have relationships with store managers um, to talk about what kinds of things they're looking for, um, you know, educating oneself about, about what's, you know, what's going on in, in terms of food distribution. Um, and not, I think also, and, and this is one of the big takeaways I want from the book, is not assuming that if something does come from Florida or Honduras, mm-hmm. as in this case, um, that that's necessarily a bad thing. You know, for, for consumers who are interested in local food or who are interested in high-quality, really, really tasty food, um, that not, not conflating spatial extension of trade relations as something that's necessarily bad, right? I think that, you know, globalization has that that, that connotation, and in, in many cases, you know, there we have seen homogenization, we've seen exploitation of labor and the environment, mm-hmm. but those things aren't necessarily correlated, right. right? All the time. Just another example of how complex the food system really is. It is. <laughs> and, it is. And, you know, there's a second takeaway point, too, that people interested in alternative food systems, in, in many ways, alternative food systems depend on our mainstream food system. Like the Florida home gardeners who are growing five acres of a variety of Thai and Vietnamese herbs and are selling in New York City, they wouldn't be able to get that stuff up to market if it wasn't for the Port of Miami and the major supply chains of conventional fruits and vegetables already moving up, you know, on trucks being loaded in, going up to Manhattan. So So there's these overlaps. It's also not productive to think, just like it's not productive to think local food systems means one thing and global food systems, you know, local food systems is good, global food systems bad. It's also not productive to think alternative agriculture is one thing, alternative food systems is one thing, and the mainstream is over there. Right. right? That there's these overlaps. And I think that's what we're starting to see, and it's really exciting. Like here in the southern tier, you know, you have major supermarket players who are really looking to work with regional farmers. And it's they're, they're going to push. They're going to be the game changers that change the supply chains so that they can, you know, prioritize regional agriculture and then get some of the production um, up to a larger scale, maybe we'll see that maybe we'll see prices come down. Um, it's going to be be interesting. Um, so I think there's a chance here for less centralization to happen. So supermarkets are doing their things, but you know, food hubs, that's where food hubs come in. Right. Um, food hubs are essentially a decentralized Wholesaler. trade model. Yeah. Um, where you're going to have, you know, wholesalers, food processors in one place, in that, and that's where the proximity piece comes in, in one place. You know, also, then I would argue for the Chinatown model, in a place, in a neighborhood, an urban neighborhood um, or a small city that can also bring in the people to shop and dine. Right, the tourist and the and the residents. Exactly. Yeah, to support exactly. the economy. All right. right. Well, one final question, Valerie. Where can we find your book? Well, you could find my book um, online. You could go to Cornell University Press and read about it. You can buy it there. 
Um, but I would also, yeah, of course, it's on Amazon, but I would also urge any listener who's interested in the book to support their local bookstore and, and order it that way. Oh, that sounds great. Agreed. All right. We'll have to leave it there today. I want to thank our guest, Valerie and Bruce, so much for joining us today. Our show is produced by my co-host, Kim Kessler, and myself, and our intern is Austin Bernierski. Show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our sponsors and our, sh- and our show engineer, David Tedashore. The show is available on Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 